1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and I'm a podcast host. And I'm someone deeply concerned about science communication and understanding the important topics that are in the world around us and, and how biotechnology might help to solve or help them. So today we're going to talk about a really important topic that is somewhat maybe taken a back burner, unfortunately, and that is the progress towards an HIV treatment or an HIV cure. And in a year where we've seen going from a a new pandemic emerging to the president promising a vaccine by election day, okay, like, like within a year, HIV has been always present, now, since the early 1980s, even maybe the late 70s. And HIV back then was a very interesting thing. I was just coming, on, going through high school and college. And at that time, there was a very strong stigma attached to this disease, almost to the point where people, well, certainly to the point where people were not discussing it or talking about the disease they were afflicted with. Um, many celebrities, including someone like Freddie Mercury, lived a long time with the disease. And its stigma kept him from sharing his illness with others until the very end. For years now, there's been searches for cures. And today, it appears as though we're getting close because we're understanding the genetic factors that contribute to HIV infection and ultimately the spectrum of, of, of associated disorders that are known as HIV AIDS. So today I have first guest ever from Kazakhstan. We're speaking with Dr. Luca Vangelista. He's an associate professor in the School of Medicine at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vangelista.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Kevin. It's a pleasure for me.
1: It's wonderful to have you aboard because I've read your reviews on the, the topic of some of the more recent ways that HIV is being addressed, especially by taking on the, the receptors by which the virus uh, uses it to shake hands with the cell and, and ultimately enter the cell. It's a really fascinating topic. But let's start with a broader picture. We've been living with HIV in the population now for 40 years. With SARS CoV 2, we're talking about vaccines in under a year. Why has a durable cure for HIV, HIV been so elusive? COVID
2: 19 therapies and vaccines in a year is what we all wish but not yet what is happening. We need to wait one year and see if it will have truly happened. Right now, we still have zero drugs and zero vaccines, unfortunately. If we consider 2003 as the year of first encounter with the human pandemic coronavirus, that is SARS-CoV, 17 years passed without a vaccine or a drug. Certainly the efforts directly directed to counteract the SARS-CoV-2 infection are unprecedented. The volume of high-level scientific reports is overwhelming, at least me, it is overwhelming, Mm -hmm. suddenly accompanied by a tsunami of very low-level and rather uh, useless publications as well. Because, uh, basically, many people are jumping on the train, in a way. Many biomedical scientists redirected their energies to confront with SARS-CoV-2, either willingly or out of necessity. And I must say that I also belong to the category in a way Um, so SARS-CoV-2 and HIV are very different viruses Um, with a different mutation rate HIV mutates four times faster than SARS-CoV-2 and that's a very important point Mm -hmm. given its respiratory route of transmission SARS-CoV-2 is dramatically more infective and difficult to control than HIV-1 in its infection Uh, that is a sexually transmitted virus Also, we need to consider that financial and research efforts spent on the understanding and on the fight against HIV infection over three decades has been massive. Despite this, HIV is a highly organized virus that that directly targets and depletes the orchestrator of immunity, the T-helper lymphocytes, and indirectly, with the superantigen activity of shed-soluble GP120 monomers, It targets and depletes the B-cell repertoire through hyperactivation and exhaustion. Basically, with this dual targeting strategy, AJV-1 largely impairs immunity. And so that's a very big reason why we have so many problems in fighting it. Env is the protein responsible for virus docking and entry into target cells. It is a trimer of GP120 and GP41 and presents an extremely elusive molecular architecture that deploys a number of immune escape mechanisms. These include the continuous emergence of mutants due to an error pro-retrotranscriptase. It also includes heavy glycosylation shielding, which hides HIV and camouflage it as a human protein. It includes cryptic epitopes of which I will speak more uh, after. Mm -hmm. And and also, it sheds GP120, produces non-functional ENV uh, trimers on the surface of the virus, and has a very low density of functional ENVs. So, all these are strategies to basically disguise the immune system. Furthermore, once the HIV genetic material integrates into the genome of human cells, HIV can remain dormant for many years. Therefore, when even when the virus is not detectable, HIV reservoirs are still present in different body districts with the possibility for viremia to resurface. The best option we have to eradicate this terrible pandemic is to finally engineer a vaccine that works by allowing an effective prevention of new infections. However, In order to be able to do that, we need to elicit special antibodies capable to target vulnerable moieties within the ENV. These are difficult to access conserved regions that the virus cannot dispense through random mutagenesis because these regions are essential for HIV survival. So we have rare individuals that are called either long-term non-progressors or elite controllers that are actually capable to live a normal life in absence of therapy, although they are HIV infected. This is possible because they produce extremely rare antibodies called broadly neutralizing antibodies that can neutralize a large spectrum of HIV variants. Broadly neutralizing antibodies have a manifold importance because while they represent potent possible anti-HIV drugs and can be administered for passive immunization, they're also instrumental for immunogen design, as we can learn from them where the vulnerable conserved regions are located within the Env protein. In alternative or also as a complement uh, to broadly neutralizing antibodies elicited with an efficacious HIV vaccine is the possibility to shock and kill the HIV latent reservoirs. But this is a mission as difficult as vaccine development. A new direction in the search for an HIV cure is the very early treatment of infection. In this way, HIV reservoirs would not have enough time to establish. Therefore, therapy would have more chances to eradicate the virus from the infected individuals without any resurfacing because the reservoirs will not not establish. But also early detection of HIV infection is not an easy task. So basically, the complex and extremely challenging scenario that I have explained to you is the reason why we don't have yet, unfortunately, a vaccine and a cure for HIV.
1: And the HIV, well, the HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, is a retrovirus, right? So this is a kind of virus that enters its cell, uh, induces, introduces its genetic material into the genome of. The host, right? So this, this, yes. is, this is actually part of every cell and then becomes part of your DNA. So that, that's yes. another really big difference between this and coronavirus. Yes. Okay. So you gave me a lot to unpack there about this, the receptors that are potential targets, the neutralizing antibodies, but what is the current regimen of treatment for an HIV patient? So the good news is that actually
2: the therapy for HIV is, uh, is an extremely sophisticated therapy because of all these efforts over the, the time. And it is called HART, that stays for highly active antiretroviral therapy. So it is a cocktail of drugs that target different stages of the virus life cycle. In doing so, basically by combining different drugs, you have a, a more efficient control of the infection, which leads to undetectable viremia, and it decreases the risk of the emergence of drug resistant HIV strains. That is also a very big problem when you want to uh, counteract the virus with drugs. So basically this drug combination is formulated in a single tablet that can be um, taken daily. So in fact, it is not really such a difficult therapy because you only have to take one pill per day Uh, The bad news is that you cannot interrupt it, because if you do that in a few weeks' time, uh, you will have a, a bouncing back of the viremia because of these latent reservoirs that
1: get activated. Well, some people, though, have been shown to be resistant to HIV infection because of this CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. And could you tell us more about that? It's really a fascinating story. We could spend a whole podcast on that alone. But tell us a little bit about the the receptor CCR5 and that mutation.
2: Yes, I completely agree with you. It's very fascinating, especially this mutation. So basically, this is a 32 base pair deletion, which leads to a non-functional receptor that is unable to fold properly. And therefore, it does not reach the cell surface. People which are homozygous for the the 5 delta 32 deletion are completely protected from HIV-1 infection and live a seemingly life, seemingly normal life. The delta 32 mutation over the human population occurs with different frequencies in different ethnic and geographical groups. A very interesting question that I would like, although you didn't ask, ask that, but I would like to, <laughs> to, ask, uh, to, to speak about is, uh, why do some of us bear this mutation? In other words, what was, the deter- what was determining the selective pressure that led to the emergence of this Delta 32 mutation? So, a number of microorganisms have been considered as the responsible agents including HIV-1, Yersinia pestis and uh, pox viruses, for instance, smallpox. However, HIV-1 is too young for humanity, too recent for humanity. And the scientific basis for Yersinia pestis as a responsible has been disproven. And uh, the fact that some specimens of humans of the Bronze Age uh, were found to contain the Delta 32 mutation basically dates uh, this mutation to times that are probably preceding the encounter of humanity with pox viruses as well. Very interestingly, a discovery that was made about 10 years ago about a toxin from Staphylococcus aureus that is called LUP-ED, consists in the fact that this toxin needs to bind to CCR5 in order to kill T-cells, macrophages, and dendritic cells. And this opened the very interesting option of Staphylococcus aureus as the responsible for the selective pressure leading to the Delta 32 mutation because we basically have this pathogen, which which has been a major killer of uh, humans since uh, humans exist, basically.
1: And Staphylococcus aureus, just for those who are unfamiliar with what that does, that's the one that today is most associated with, um, with MRSA, with, uh, with some of the multiple, multi-drug resistant uh, infections, right? That's that's that particular pathogen. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because here's a receptor, though, that's doing a job. So this is typically a chemokine receptor, the CCR5. So what is its normal role? Um, aside from a role where viruses can uh, dock with a cell?
2: Yes. So c 5 is a G-couple protein receptor, a G-protein couple receptor, sorry, and uh, also called GPCR. And this is actually the, the GPCR uh, family is the biggest protein superfamily in the human genome with about 800 members. These are seven transmembrane receptors that are very important from the medical point of view because basically 40% of the existing, about 40% of the existing drugs target GPCRs. And they are literally a portal to the environment because they can sense anything from protein ligands to light or opioids or even share stress. CCR5 therefore belongs to this uh, GPCR family and it is the major HIV coreceptor, and it is also the most exclusively one in primary infection. So basically, in absence of CCR5, humans cannot be infected by HIV, and that's why it's so important in the HIV pathogenesis.
1: Well, could you tell us a little bit more about the Berlin man and the London man? So there's two people who are alive today. Who have been essentially cured? I, I don't know if I can really say that, but essentially cured of HIV. And could you tell us a little bit about how this happened?
2: Yes, this is a very interesting uh, event, and uh, you can actually say that they have been cured, and they are the only two individuals which are reportedly uh, cured by HIV. So these were two; these are two people who uh, were HIV infected, and both had two different types of uh, malignancies by which they r- required a bone marrow transplantation. So the first person who has been treated in this way was uh, the Berlin patient in 2007. And uh, basically the genius idea was from the doctor who was looking for a compatible uh, donor. He was also looking for a compatible donor that possibly harbored the G, the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. And uh, Luckily enough, he found it, he found this person. And uh, since the bone marrow transplantation, the Berlin patient is basically uh, free of HIV. About 10 years later, a second bone marrow transplantation on another person that became the London patient basically underwent the same type of of, uh, strategy. And uh, now we have two people basically freed of HIV infection.
1: It's such an amazing story, and it makes me so happy because to think that this was always a, a a terminal illness unless you managed it, and now there's people who are cured. It opens the door for really direction of pharmacological, or well, drug design, and, and other issues. But one other approach was taken in China. So is the CCR5 gene the gene that was mutated in the Chinese twins by that one doctor?
2: Yes, uh, sadly so, yes. Uh, I would like to, to add something to the previous point of the, of the Berlin and London patients, though. Sure. And that is that this had a, a, a very big resonance, of course. And as you said, this was fantastic because uh, it opened a door for the cure of this very difficult uh, infection. But uh, to the point that even some state, head of states announced programs called zero aids. But this became very soon evident that was not a possible strategy for in, in adopted in large scale because you understand that bone marrow transplantation is a very invasive uh, treatment, plus you need to find someone who harbors this mutation. So this was definitely not uh, a realistic option, although... In those cases of infected uh, people who need a bone marrow transplantation, certainly a search for uh, a Delta 32 harboring donor is, is a good strategy. But you can see that this can be count probably in one hand in total in the planet. And uh, a more interesting um, opening strategy uh, by this um, evidence is the gene editing. So gene editing is basically the way we engineer um, DNA in order to uh, basically destroy the CCR5 uh, uh, gene and basically reproduce uh, the natural CCR5 delta 2 uh, mutation by human intervention. But we need to keep in mind that this strategy is definitive. So once you do it, you actually destroy this gene. And this is an important point. In the case of the Chinese twins, unfortunately, this was done at the embryo level. So this two uh, twins uh, have been gene edited from birth and they harbor this uh, CCR5 mutation in their gene in their genome and uh, all the offsprings of these two uh, babies will uh, inherit this plus the technology that, so this was definitely unethical because you cannot do this to just think that you might prevent HIV infection at random it's like shooting a fly with a bazooka, in other words. And uh, also, the CRISPR-Cas technology was used to obtain this. And uh, the CRISPR-Cas technology, although very hot and um, certainly fantastic, is not safe enough yet because we have the problem of off targeting, which we haven't understood uh, completely.
1: now that's very true. And now these two twins are going to be... Um, living with, presumably, and potentially passing on this uh, deletion in CCR5. But, you know, do, do people who have the CCR5 mutation, do they have any other incidence of unusual diseases or problems? Because what is, what is CCR5's typical ligand as a G-protein coupled receptor? Yes. So
2: the people that have this mutation live a, a normal life, basically. But we need to think that the, the, the chemokine system is a, a highly integrated system. Basically, each chemokine receptor can bind the different chemokines and each chemokine can bind different receptors. So it might be that the people who have this genetic uh, mutation have reorganized their chemokine system in order to deal with it. But if you intervene from outside with uh, gene editing, you may actually create um, a, situ- a genetic situation which may lead to certain pathologies because these people are not ready to, to, to bear the, 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 the knockout. The normal ligands of CCR5, the, the, the main natural ligands for CCR5 are CCL3, CCL4, and CCL5, that are CC chemokines. CC stands for two systems which are basically uh, adjacent to each other in the sequence of the, of the chemokine. And the chemokine families are uh, subdivided into this um, arrangement of these two uh, systems.
1: Well, we talk about chemokines and the chemokine system. Well, give, give me a good back of the envelope idea about what the chemokine system is.
2: Yeah, so the chemokine system is very, very complex and, uh, and vast. I can tell you just to remain in the, in the theme uh, and, and to be more simple that CCR5 and mostly its axis with the CCL5, that is uh, the most studied chemokine that binds to the receptor, are uh, a pro-inflammatory axis. So basically, CCR5 is a very important receptor in a, in a large number of um, situations. Because it is uh, helping in orchestrating the response of the immune system, particularly directing uh, an, an inflammatory response.
1: Well, very good. So this is all starting to come together. We're talking about some of the cellular hardware that's required for HIV infection. And one of the targets, one of the things required is CCR5. We're speaking with Dr. Luca Vangelista. He's an associate professor in the School of Medicine in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Nazarbayev University in the Republic of Kazakhstan. We'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment.
3: Scientific information is being generated at an amazing rate. It is critical that we be able to recognize bad information when we hear it, and possibly understand the motivations of those that provide it. I'm speaking with Dr. Cami Ryan. She's a social scientist lead at Mayor Crop Sciences. What is misinformation?
4: Well, in the literature, misinformation is referred to as inaccurate or incomplete information. And it's suggested that misinformation could mislead people through a number of reasons, including negligence, unconscious bias or even an honest mistake.
3: Well then what is disinformation?
4: Well disinformation is qualitatively different because it is a product of a carefully planned and technically, this. and I'm quoting actually Phallus from 2009, as a product of a carefully planned and technically sophisticated deceit process. So disinformation often comes with intended or expected outcomes. And it's anything from something as minor as attracting likes or shares within your Facebook page or profile to actually trying to outright ban targeted products or technologies.
3: How do we tell them apart?
4: Uh, It's not always easy. (laughs) It's not bifurcated right down the middle. I think we use those terms interchangeably without understanding that you need to disentangle them in order to understand them. A lot of times, misinformation and disinformation are kind of inextricably connected. But I think a big difference between misinformation and disinformation is the whole notion of intent behind it. Misinformation is often shared with Uh, Unintentionally, with the person not understanding that it is incorrect or inaccurate information. Disinformation is often intentionally shared with expected outcomes. Disinformation is essentially a product with a market. And that market is the attention economy.
3: Well, there you have it. Are they ignorant? Or are they lying? It's important to think about, especially as you formulate your strategy to engage the public. Invisible online paper.
1: Now, back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Luca Evangelista of Nazarbayev University, and we're talking about CCR5 and its role in HIV and its potential as a drug target. And in the previous section, we kind of characterized what HIV was and how CCR5 played a role in its transmission, the role of the mutants of CCR5 that protect those who have them from HIV. But CCR5 does much more than that. Um, it's an important, uh, has a role in, in in chemokine response. So why is there more and more interest in CCR5 as a drug target? Yes. Yeah, so this
2: is actually very impressive uh, it's also impressing me who I'm studying this receptor, because there is a large and, and growing uh, number of pathologies where this receptor uh, apparently plays a very important role. And this can be divided into two main category, categories, uh, infectious diseases and inflammation-related pathologies. Infectious diseases because a number of pathogens use in different ways CCR5 to actually exert their infectivity. And the major ones, we already mentioned them. They are, of course, HIV and the Staphylococcus aureus. But we also have pathologies in which uh, inflammation is actually apparently driven by CCR5. And and among them, uh, I can can certainly name cancer, atherosclerosis, and even stroke. And in all these instances, basically, the blockade of CCR5 is a very promising um, strategy.
1: Well, that's interesting because of the genetic component do people with CCR5 mutation, with the Delta 32 mutation, do they show less incidence of cancer and stroke? That's a very good point. Uh, There are a lot of uh, reports on
2: atherosclerosis, and uh, these are kind of contradicting. So there are also situations in which apparently this uh, Delta 32 mutation seems to produce an unexpected result in terms of epidemiology. But um, but there, there are really a lot of uh, reports, uh, particularly in cancer, that are showing that uh, blocking CCR5 can be uh, a working strategy in certain conditions.
1: Well, when we're talking about blocking CCR5, it may, might make it a useful target. But could disrupting a chemokine receptor, and we kind of covered this already, but could blocking that chemokine receptor cause other problems? And and do we see anything uh, like that happening?
2: Yeah. So this is a, a very important point and is certainly a concern because basically uh, you're going to block a, a human receptor which uh, is not there for nothing. And uh, we also need to consider that uh, inflammation is basically a first line of defense when our body is uh, receiving an external offense. So although Of course, if it is prolonged in time, then it becomes deleterious. So no one really knows if blocking or destroying CCR5 is uh, bringing some uh, negative uh, aspects. So there is a major difference in this case between gene editing and pharmacological treatment because gene editing is permanently destroying the gene. Therefore, you cannot go back. But with pharmacological intervention, basically... Once you stop it, CCR5 can resume its physiological role in the organism. I would like to mention just as as also an important point, the fact that there is at least one infectious agent, that is West Nile virus, in which CCR5 has been shown to play actually a protective role against the pathogen.
1: That's really interesting. So the Chinese twins may find themselves getting West Nile at a higher frequency. I hope not. When we talk about CCR5, the CCR5 blockade targeting that receptor, why is this the most attractive way to attack HIV compared to going after, say, CD4 or some of the other uh, molecules that are involved in HIV uh, inter or HIV infection?
2: Well. Actually, uh, I I don't think it is the most uh, preferred strategy. Uh, It is certainly unique because instead of targeting the virus, in this case, you actually target a human protein. But certainly it is important because it stops HIV entry. That is the first step in the virus life cycle. But many other uh, compounds and drugs are doing the same job. So rather than being the preferred one, it is actually unique because it's the only, uh, case in which we are actually targeting a human protein rather than the virus.
1: And what are some of the other, uh, targets that have been associated with CCR5? Like what are some of the, um, other drugs or molecules that have been identified as agonists of CCR5? Well, the
2: main drug that is actually an FDA approved drug is called Maraviroc. And this is a small chemical compound. And, uh, This actually is the the only compound that made it to FDA approval out of a massive effort by several giant pharmaceutical companies, let's say, at the end of the 90s, between the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. And it's the only one who made it through because it was the only one who didn't uh, show any toxicity, any severe side effects. So Maraviroc is a small chemical compound, as I said, and it's basically penetrating deeply in the receptor groove of CCR5 and uh, blocks the receptor in an inactive conformation. This is very important because basically when you want to block the receptor, you need to have a ligand that is able to bind to this receptor and not activate it. So because we we heard before that basically CCR5 is a pro-inflammatory um, receptor, and if you want, of course, to fight inflammatory conditions, you need to have an antagonist, basically not an activating um, ligand. But also in the case of HIV, if you want to use it as a systemic and, and um, as a drug, uh, you don't want to have inflammation as a side effect. So you need to have uh, ligands which actually bind to CCR5 as antagonists. There are other uh, compounds which are very interesting, and uh, in this case, I am probably uh, largely involved in that. That is the possibility to actually modify the natural ligands that are these chemokines I mentioned before, and particularly one of these ligands has been extremely um, uh, extensively uh, studied and engineered, that is CCL5 to the point that we have extremely potent uh, derivatives that act in the, in the range of the, um, of the low picomolar uh, concentration. Uh, also important is the fact that there is the possibility to switch these chemokine ligands from agonists into antagonists by modifying their terminus. Finally, another category of drugs that are, or compounds that are also very promising are antibodies. These are very difficult to obtain. Basically, it's very difficult to obtain an antibody that is able to bind CCR5 as an antagonist and also to compete with GP120 in order to inhibit uh, HIV entry. There are three such antibodies, two of which are in clinical trials. One is called PRO140 or Leronlimab, and the other one is called CCR5-MAB-004. And then there is another one that is called ROAB13. These are extremely interesting because you add to the inhibition of HIV and the blockade of the receptor all the extra functions that are brought about by an antibody, for instance, from the FC portion and the possibility to bind two different receptors at the same time.
1: Yeah, I see. That's been pretty exciting to think about all the different ways in which drugs have been targeting these molecules that are required for uh, HIV propagation. Well, what about other targets and other drugs? So, what other drugs are being developed to potentially decrease viral titers?
2: As I said before, the therapy for HIV is a very, very effective one. So, whenever you want to have a new drug, you have to, you know, develop something that is really special because the drugs available are already super potent. But there is a category of uh, new uh, drugs emerging that are really very promising for a number of reasons. I already mentioned them before, but I would like to stress it uh, more now. And these are broadly neutralizing antibodies because basically these antibodies are very potent. They can target uh, most of the virus strains And they can act as drugs, they can provide passive immunization, and they are extremely instrumental for vaccine development. So, you know, on one hand, you want to cure infected people from
1: HIV, but on the other hand, you really want to prevent new infections. Well, I'll do something that I I tend to do on the podcast and maybe is a little bit um, hazardous, but... You mentioned that some of these are in clinical trials. Are there any hints of success or any uh, really optimistic findings that could be of interest to those who have HIV? So in terms of uh, CCR5 antagonists, as I said before, we have Maraviroc, that
2: is already a drug approved. And then we have two monoclonal antibodies that are in clinical trials. Other than that, uh, the chemokines uh, derivatives, mm, they are not in clinical trials. Uh, it's more difficult to put forward the chemokine derivatives because, you know, when you go for uh, a protein drug, you have uh, you have to face a much uh, higher level of uh, difficulty than a small chemical compound. Although, once you succeed chemical, I mean, um,
1: Protein drugs are superior. Well, Dr. Luca Evangelista, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, It was a big pleasure for me.
1: And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate your reviews um, on iTunes or any place where you consume media. Uh, Your assistance through Patreon is helping us uh, advertise the podcast and our listenership is growing so even uh, a dollar a month is a really big deal so thank you very much for all of that assistance this is the talking biotech podcast and we'll talk to you next week
3: the talking biotech podcast reflects the personal views of dr kevin folta and its guests These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.